Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The plan is to cover the, really the second half and really the end of 2 Corinthians 4 today, and then to cover the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 5 next Sunday, and then we'll have a couple of sermons that are more directly uh, focused on Christmas and the Christmas season after that. These are verses that we have read a whole lot in the last uh, couple of months, so they will probably be familiar to you if you've been around this church in in recent days, Uh, but there is just so much here that is meant for our encouragement. Let me just give you a a, a few, uh, let me mention just a couple of things briefly here. Look with me, 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to go ahead and just read for us uh, this whole chapter, and then we're going to begin to work back through it. This is the word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that His grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would help us to better understand this text that we have been reading frequently in these days. Help us to see it even more clearly, perhaps, than we do now. And I pray that you would be honored in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, really this whole chapter, and beyond, and before, the larger section here of 2 Corinthians, this section is all about one major thing. And I've titled the sermon, This Major Theme. I've titled the sermon, So We Do Not Lose Heart. You may not have noticed how many times Paul mentions this, but look at verse 1 again. 
He says there at the end of the verse, we do not lose heart. Skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. And even chapter 5, next week's text, verse 6, so we are always of good courage. You see that theme repeating. We don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. We are of good courage. This is about Paul dealing with the possibility of discouragement. Why might Paul be discouraged? Well, Paul's apostleship was being questioned and undermined in the Corinthian church. And Paul himself was facing many and varied trials. If you flip over to chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, look, look with us here, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. This is probably when Paul was in Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. So you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many." J.I. Packer, not long before he died, wrote a short book that is mainly focused on 2 Corinthians. I think he typed it on his old typewriter. He wrote all his books on a very old typewriter when he was in his late 80s, I believe. He wrote this book, I think, in his 80s. And the title of the book summarizes the whole of 2 Corinthians. It's very simple. Packer titled the book, Weakness is the Way. Weakness is the Way. And when you read the book of 2 Corinthians, you will find out that weakness is about all Paul seems to have to offer left to himself. You read through the book, and Paul is speaking of his weakness on almost every page. I mean, some famous verses. He gets to the end, and he says, I pleaded with the Lord to remove this thorn three different times. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, insults, persecutions, because I know that when I am weak, then I am strong. He says at the end of the book, Christ was crucified in weakness, but He lives by the power of God. See, the Corinthians, not very unlike perhaps Americans in this regard, the Corinthians loved human wisdom and human power and human strength. If you could show off your oratory skill... The Corinthians wanted to, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. They loved anyone with rhetoric, anyone with skill in speaking. So Paul says, when I came to speak to you the first time, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling that the evidence of the power would belong to God, not to me. That everyone would see it was God's power at work. And in this letter, Paul is not afraid to show us how weak he is. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul talks about a stressful moment in his ministry, and then he says in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And then listen to the great apostle Paul. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, 
But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul says, my ministry is not motivated by my paycheck. I'm not peddling God's word like a salesman trying to make a buck. Paul says, I'm speaking sincerely in the sight of God. I'm telling you, I am insufficient for my ministry. That's Paul. Paul who knows the Old Testament better than you could ever dream. Paul who was raised as a Pharisee sitting at the feet of the great teacher Gamaliel in those early years of the first century. Paul who was going ahead of many of his contemporaries in in the Pharisee group. He was the leader amongst his peers. Paul, the great apostle, the great intellect of the apostle Paul, the man with an incredible mind, incredible gifting. And what does Paul say? I am insufficient to do what God has called me to do left to myself. And there could be a temptation for any of us to look at our lives and say, God, I don't feel sufficient for what you've called me to do in my life. I don't know about you. Weakness is a regular part of the Christian life, if we're being honest with ourselves, right? We need strength. And the strength doesn't come from within, doesn't come from gritting your teeth, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, trying harder, you know, just trying to find something deep within. No, Paul would say, my sufficiency is in Christ. So we do not lose heart. Why? Because our sufficiency in the midst of all of life's circumstances comes from Christ. I read this quote preparing for this sermon from a commentator. Listen to this. As Paul's outward life conforms ever more closely to the crucified Christ, his inward life conforms ever more closely to the glorified Christ. Now, I don't think, probably you won't misunderstand, this is not talking about Christians becoming divine. I say this because I had a conversation with some people not long ago who do believe that we become gods. They were of the Mormon belief, and uh, they came to our house. I want to make very clear, we do not believe that we become divine or we become God, but in all the ways that we were designed to be like God, to be holy as He is holy, to be Christ-like in all those appropriate ways, listen to this, as we live on in this life, our outer self will more and more resemble the crucified Christ, and our inward self will more and more show the resurrection power of the glorified Christ. Our outer man is wasting away, but our inward man is being renewed day by day. So let's look here at a few things that cause Paul not to lose heart. Let me go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now listen, none of us have the Apostle Paul's job. None of us are apostles. None of us are writing books of the Bible. None of us are doing what Paul has done. We did not see Jesus uh, come down to meet us at our conversion. We don't have what Paul had in that regard. But all of us have ministry. Ministry just means serving others for the sake of Christ. All of us have ministry. If you're a Christian, you're called to the ministry in that sense right? We are called to love others and to minister to others. And we should know, no matter what place God has given us, we have whatever ministry we have by the mercy of God. And because it is a merciful gift from God, no matter how humble our ministry may seem to others, we know it is a gift from God and we do not lose heart. Look at verses 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, 
lowercase g, the God of this age, Satan, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's why we don't lose heart. And you can read chapter 3 to get the full details of this. In chapter 3, Paul says, listen, the Old Covenant was written on stone tablets, and it by itself was not able to transform the heart. We need God's Spirit to transform our heart. And he says, we live in the New Covenant era where God's Spirit has been poured out abundantly from Pentecost on, and God's Spirit empowers His Word and illuminates His Word and regenerates people who are dead in sin. And Paul says, listen, I know that when I present the gospel in my weakness and frailty, I mean, I know I just kind of quoted this, but I want you to hear this again. This is how Paul says he preached the gospel in Corinth. Listen to his own words. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, stop. Why did God design it such a way that He uses fallible, frail jars of clay like you and I to advance His kingdom in this world? Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we don't lose heart because when we speak to others and we speak the truth of the gospel to others... God is able to do the reversal of what Satan has done. I teach high school Bible, as you know. I do Q&As semi-regularly in my class. I love to take questions from students. And as inevitably happens this, this past week, angels and demons comes up. Always curious about demons and Satan and demonic things and what do you believe and what does the Scripture say? I won't go through all the details, but I, I, I almost always make the same point when this topic comes up because everyone gets kind of excited in a way that's probably not healthy when that topic comes. Oh, what does it mean? Tell me all the secrets. About, I, don't, I don't have all the secrets. But here's one thing I always tell my students. When you think about satanic things and demonic things in Scripture, we don't tend to think about the main thing that Satan's up to in the world. It's verse 4. In their case, unbelievers, the God of this world, Satan, what's Satan mainly up to? He has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The number one satanic thing going on in the world is boredom with the Bible and boredom with Jesus. So if you want to know what Satan loves... He loves when the eyes of our heart and our mind are blinded to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when you look at sports, when you're watching Georgia football, you see glory. You're jumping up and down. You're excited. You see glory. When it's a movie that you love, you see glory. You're moved. Maybe you're moved to tears by the story and the acting and the directing is so compelling. You see glory. 
When the Olympics roll around, you watch because you want to see people do things that seem physically impossible because you see glory, this ability, this talent on display. In the gospel, God has put His attributes on incredible display. But He does it in a way that the world can't see it. Only the eyes of faith can see the glory of what's going on in the the gospel. See, to the unbeliever, the gospel is foolishness. It's folly. You're talking about a crucified man. What's the big deal? Why are you obsessed with this? Why are you reading this old Bible? But when Satan is defeated by God, the eyes of the heart open, and I'm able to see the glory of the gospel, that is converting grace. That's what conversion is. It's when the Bible was fundamentally boring and it came to life. It's when Jesus was a historical figure you could debate, maybe something you grew up with, But suddenly he becomes real and compelling and moving and stirring and glorious to you. You have a desire for him, a hunger for him produced by that sight of his glory. So why don't we lose heart? Because God uses weak, frail, insufficient people like Paul and you and me to open blind eyes by his mercy so that friends and family, co-workers and students in class and people in our dorm neighbors, someone you're sitting across the table from at dinner is enabled by God's grace to have their eyes opened and to see the glory of Jesus and to be forgiven and to be transformed. That's why we don't lose heart, because God uses us in our weakness to transform others. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. But we have this treasure, that's the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So God set it up this way so that we are encouraged because God will use us. Ultimately, why? So that He gets the glory and we get the joy of being used to influence others. And then now, now, now get this. So Paul mentions we're jars of clay. And, and I just got to mention, in the, in the first century, you know, archaeologists are always digging up old clay pots. Seems like there's little else for archaeologists to find sometimes other than clay pots. Have you noticed this? There's always broken clay pottery and they're trying to piece it back together. Why was clay pottery so pervasive in archaeology? To this day, they're still finding engravings and etchings on ancient clay pots from all over the ancient Near East. Why is that? Because clay pots were the most common and disposable item you can imagine. It's just all over the Bible, God will, he will break them with his rod of iron like clay vessels. All over the place, pottery is spoken of as being broken, as it's something easy to break. It's often used as an analogy of God's judgment, breaking clay pots. And then Paul calls us clay pots. You say, thank you, Paul. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, we, we know what he means by this. We are frail. And then he says, alongside that, this treasure that we have is the power of God and the gospel within us that works out of us and through us to influence others. Here's the point. God wants to pick the most breakable, fragile vessels to hold the gold of the gospel. Why? So that when people look at you, no one thinks it's you. Everyone knows it's coming from some other source. It's coming from God, the source of that treasure. That's the point. It's to humble us and to magnify God. And so this famous list Paul gives in verses 8 and following, he's simply sharing those two things. Paul's giving the clay pot side of his frailty, and he's giving the resurrection power of Jesus side that picks him back up. Just listen to the two. His frailty, Christ's power. Listen, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way. That's the clay pot. But we are not crushed. 
That's God's power. We are perplexed in our weakness, but we're not driven to despair because of God. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And then Paul quotes the psalm I read at the beginning of the service, Psalm 116. Look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, and I quote Psalm 116, verse 10, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, now see if you can follow this, and I, I hope, I'm, I, mean, I think I'm getting this right. I'm still, I need to spend more time really thinking through this. But in Psalm 116, if you remember what we read, you got precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But around that verse, the psalmist has nearly died, nearly gone to gra- the grave, Sheol. And God rescued him from death, brought him back to the land of the living, and he continues to live in the flesh here. And Paul's picking up on the theme of that, but Paul's taking it even, it seems, a step further. He's saying, in light of Christ's finished work, it goes beyond simply God rescuing us from death. It's rescuing us from death after we have died, now that Christ has been raised from the dead. That's what he mentions in verse 14, all for God's glory. So now look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. He repeats it. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I have to tell you something I learned. I I don't think I ever knew this before, but it was fascinating to see this. So I hope this makes sense. I'm just going to mention two Greek words because I'm going to show what Paul does with them. This is really intriguing to me. So in verse 17, he mentions the eternal weight. The Greek word is baros, weight of glory. And then he says beyond all comparison. Now, the Greek word for beyond all comparison is where we get the English word hyperbole like to exaggerate, to go beyond. Uh, it's the word hyperbole. Okay, so we get, we get the English word hyperbole. Now, he, I didn't know this. Hyperbole, hyperbole, and he puts the word bareo, same word, puts them together. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. At first, this is perplexing, but I think it makes an amazing point. Second Corinthians 1, 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were... Hyperbole, we were utterly, same word translated in chapter 4 is beyond comparison, utterly. We were so utterly, and then here's the word for weight or burden, burden, bareo, beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, now get this. You see what Paul's doing here? Paul goes through a near-death experience of affliction. It was, for Paul to say it was the sentence of death means it was intense. 
Okay? Paul goes through a, a near-death experience in Asia, probably when he was ministering in Ephesus for those couple of years. Uh, it may have been the Ephesian riot. It may have been something else. We don't know. But whatever it was, it was, a, it was his, he nearly died. And Paul is saying, man, when I went through that, it felt, and he uses these two Greek words, utterly burdensome, overwhelming in its weight. It felt overwhelming. And he said, I turned to God, and God delivered me, and God showed his grace to me. And then you flip back to chapter 4. And now Paul takes our suffering in this life which felt so utterly overwhelming, and now he puts it in comparison to eternity. And he speaks of the suffering almost reverse of what he just said in chapter 1. Do you see? Now he says, actually, our suffering in this life is light and momentary. Wait, Paul, you just said your suffering in Asia was utterly burdensome. It was beyond measure, weighty. And now he uses opposite words. Our suffering in this life is light and momentary. You say, Paul, what? You just completely said the opposite of what, what, what do you mean? And Paul says, right now, I am looking at it from the lens of eternity. From the lens of eternity, I'm actually going to use the word weighty and beyond comparison to describe our glory that is coming, and I'm going to describe my affliction in this life as light and momentary. Because when Paul puts it on the scales, he puts the worst suffering for, say, 80 years on one side of the scale, and that looks heavy. Living through that would be heavy. And then he places eternal weight of glory on the other side of the scale, and what looked overwhelming now looks light and momentary, not because it's, it seems small in itself, but by comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is coming for us in heaven. So he says, we don't lose heart. As we look, verses, this is chapter 4, verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The outer self wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. So here's why we don't lose heart. Despite suffering and affliction and the feeling of wasting away, we are being renewed day by day. Now, that, that word renewed is used one other time, exactly the same word is used one other time in Colossians 3.10. You don't have to turn there. Paul says, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed, same exact word, in knowledge after the Im image of its creator. So how does this renewal happen day by day? It happens in knowledge of our creator. It's like Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be renewed. How? by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the renewal is like this. Renewal begins with the mind. We have God's truth day by day poured into our mind. The knowledge of our Creator through His Word poured into our mind day by day. And that knowledge by the Spirit is illuminated so we can truly understand it, and the Spirit applies it to our heart. The Spirit brings that truth down into our affections where we are stirred by it. We, we, we rejoice in it. We find peace in it. We are transformed by it. And as that truth goes down into our affections, it goes through the mind, into the heart, we are transformed. We are renewed day by day. Now, why did God set it up like this? Why doesn't God just snap His fingers and make us perfectly sanctified the first day we become a Christian? Because you know He'll do that when He returns, right? So when Jesus comes back, the trumpet will sound, and we will never sin again. In a moment, in a, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Why doesn't God do it the second we become a Christian, we never sin again? And I won't claim to know all of God's reasoning, but I think one reason from this text would be clear. 
And I heard this from another pastor. This was helpful to me. It's like we have to refuel every single day at the, at the station. We've got to go back and refuel every single day. Why? So that ultimately God is getting the glory because it's showing our desperate need for Him every single day. If we felt like, I got, I got my act together now, I can kind of do this on my own, we might be tempted to trust in our own strength here in this life, but God makes it to where every day's grace is there for the day, and then we need a renewal the next day so that we are constantly dependent on Him and on His strength to uh, satisfy our heart and to transform us. Look with me back to chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3. This describes that process of day-by-day transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as God removes the veil of blindness and we see the glory of Jesus, that glory comes through our mind into our heart by the Spirit and it transforms us into the same glory from one degree to the next over time. And it keeps us dependent on God. I want to read um, a poem here. You may have heard this. It's called, I think it's called The Mendicant, something along those lines. Mendicant just means a beggar. And I first heard this from, uh, not from Elizabeth Elliot, but from one of those involved in the, in the martyrdom of Jim Elliot and, the, and their friends. And listen to this uh, poem that describes God's purposes in our suffering and in why He sometimes allows us to go through very difficult things. So remember, mendicant means beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before His royal throne and begged Him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out His hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which Thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to Thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, As long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned He never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides His face. Now, I want to close the sermon by telling two brief stories. As we approach death, as we think about our outer man wasting away, our inner self being renewed day by day, there are very different ways that people approach death. And I want to read two very opposite ways in which death uh, has been dealt with. This first one comes from R. Kent Hughes. There's a pastor. He writes from a recording from another man named Frederick Catherwood. Now listen to this. Sir Frederick Catherwood was a Christian businessman. This guy's a believer. And a one-time chairman of the European Parliament. He once sat at a lunch with one of Britain's greatest scientists who at the time was the president of the Royal Society of Britain, and the two discussed the Bible and Christianity. The aged scientist remained firm in his unbelief. So you get this, you got two very prominent people, one a Christian, one a non-Christian scientist. They're talking about Christianity. They're both older men. And the Christian later records this comment about that meeting. Quote, only three or four years later, after their conversation, only three or four years later, a few months before his death, I saw the same man, that scientist, in a library at our club. 
a gaunt, gloomy, silent figure hunched over the fire, staring into nothing, face to face with oblivion. When I left the club sometime later, he was standing in the rain without a coat. I offered him a lift. He told me not to bother. He had come to the end, and nothing seemed to matter anymore. Hear that? A man late in life, near the end of his life, he dies a few months later. He's not a believer. He's got nothing to live for, and he's just staring into nothing, and he's outside in the rain uh, just, just with absolutely no purpose to his life. Now, let me contrast that with uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor uh, in London for, in the last century, one of the great preachers of the last century, and I want to read an excerpt from his death. Listen to how different the gospel is in its effect on those who die in the Lord. Listen to this. Following, in the, this, is, this is in February of 1981 when he died. He died actually in early March. In the following week, he gradually lost the strength and breath with which to speak and communicated with the family, and communication with the family had to continue by a nod of his head or by a look or a sign, uh, one or two very brief notes. He could write little notes. Among his last audible words were those spoken to his consultant, Grant Williams, who visited him on February 24, 1981, when Mr. Williams wanted to give him some antibiotics to Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, MLJ shook his head in disagreement. Well, said his doctor, when the Lord's time comes, even though I fill you up to the top of your head with antibiotics, it will not make any difference. His patient still shook his head. And then the doctor says, I want to make you comfortable, more comfortable. Williams went on, it grieves me to see you sitting here weary and worn and sad. That was too much for Martin Lloyd-Jones. These are some of the last words he ever said. Not sad, not sad. The truth was that he believed the work of dying was done and he was ready to go. Last night, Grant Williams wrote, he refused to take any antibiotic. He could hardly talk, and I think he will die very shortly. I think he is very lucid and knows exactly what he wants to do. At one point in these last few days, when his speech had gone, his daughter Elizabeth was sitting beside him, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones pointed over to the Bible, and he, they says, she said, his daughter said, he pointed very definitely to the words of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, that we've been reading today. When I asked him, his daughter said, Elizabeth, when I asked him if that was his experience now, that his outer man is wasting away, but his inner man is being renewed day by day, when I asked him if that was his experience now, he nodded his head with great vigor. On Thursday evening, February 26th, in a shaky hand, he wrote on a scrap of paper for the family, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, as we look at this contrast between an unbelieving atheist scientist who was very prominent in his field and yet late in retirement, just a few months from death, was sitting alone at this club staring into the fire and then later out in the cold and the rain looking face to face with oblivion. He had no hope, no peace, no joy. But when we look at a man like Dr. David Moy Lloyd, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great Believer, he says, don't even pray for my healing now. It is time for me to go. Don't hold me back from the glory. And he testified that his very experience was that though his outer man was wasting away, his inner man was being renewed day by day, and that this light and momentary affliction was achieving for him an eternal glory that far outweighs everything else. So 
God, I pray that you would help all of us to turn to Christ and to trust Him. If anyone listening is not a believer, God, I pray that you would open the eyes of the heart, show them the futility of life apart from Christ, and the utter joy, even in the midst of the most difficult days of life, the true joy and confidence and peace that comes only from Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.